don't know if I'm gonna make it down to 155. I'm lucky I make it to 160. And on top of that, you sign me for a fight at 155. And if I don't make the 155, I lose $15,000. That's right. Oh, you're supposed to be a manager. You're supposed to know what you're doing. I did just what I wanted to do. That's what I'm worried about. Hello, and welcome to 80s Movie Montage. This is Derek. And this is Anna. And this week, we are discussing... Raging Bull. The classic 80s comedy. (laughs) Yeah, and... Although uh, the clip that we just played probably isn't maybe what most people would consider one of the more iconic clips from the movie, it was uh, really pretty difficult to find one that wasn't just like... Flat out, insanely offensive. Yeah, uh, slur filled, uh, curse word filled. So I could, I could. We tried our best. Yeah, I could run with the uh, <laughs> with the profanity laden tirades, but but it was few and far between interactions between Jake LaMotta and his brother Joey, Joey. played by Joe Pesci, yeah. that weren't uh, incredibly offensive. Yeah, but that clip. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons why we pulled that one is because even though so much of the movie is about Jake and his second wife, Vicky, this relationship between the brothers is kind of the central relationship. Yeah. And it uh, it shows how smart Joey was and that he really was a great manager and, and a great brother, for that matter. And Jake, as we will definitely dive into both on our own and with our special guest david who was amazing uh jake not not so great of a guy as it turns out great fighter great fighter not so great guy uh so yeah we have a lot to chat about and actually a lot of brand new people to talk about um yes amazingly this is well I guess it's not so amazing. It's not like we've been doing this for years, but uh, this is our very first Scorsese movie. Yeah, that was uh, surprising to me a little bit. little bit. I but... mean, he's not exactly a Mr. Comedy movie or Mr. Action Adventure movie, and given that that's mostly the films that we cover. Yeah, I thought for sure that he was involved in Goonies, and it turns out he was not. <laughs> Uncredited writer. Yeah. <laughs> Goodies. Nope. But uh, yeah, so doing Raging Bull, uh, 1980. So I think this might be the earliest film yet. I think we, we've, we've possibly covered a couple from actual, well, maybe 81. Early, but, yeah, yeah, early 80s. But I think this is our first 1980, maybe. But. I mean, this um, this movie, if there's any movie that really like transcends that, that decade or that genre of movie, Raging Bull is not an 80s movie. It is just one of the arguably greater greatest movies made that just happened to have been made in 1980 yeah it definitely has a timeless feel to it but unlike some of our classic you would think of them as an 80s movie movie this one's got a montage this one does have a montage which we will talk about so raging bull so we're uh we're really classing up the joint in season two because this is our second film in a row that has been like multi-oscar nominated and and Oscar winner. Oh man, I miss the the real genius days. <laughs> but uh so yeah, this film eight Oscar nominations. If you were curious about what they all are, I, I will list them off. What are they? Uh we have best sound, best cinematography, best director, best supporting actress, best supporting actor, best picture, best editing, best actor. And the two for which the film got their wins were Best Actor for De Niro and Best Editing. So, I am surprised it didn't win for Best Cinematography. We talk about that later on. I we just, do. I, I am think surprised. that was a travesty. And I know yeah. that's a very dramatic word, but I think it's warranted here. Travis Sham mockery. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So in terms of 
who wrote this movie. It's actually <laughs> really, really interesting because yeah. it is a biography of sorts that is pulled from a book written by Jake LaMotta about yeah. his own life. So uh, there's a book by credit for Jake LaMotta, the actual boxer. And then he was helped along in writing that book with two individuals, Joseph Carter and Peter Savage. Uh, Joseph Carter, I think this was his one and done credit um, from what I can see okay. on IMDb. I mean, uh, it's possible he did other kinds of writings that just weren't applicable to like film or television. But uh, Peter Savage... He has a couple other credits, and it's kind of interesting because I'm going to loop back to LaMotta, but I needed to bring up Savage first because some of his other credits include The Runaways, Cauliflower Cupids. Oh, yeah. One of the strangest names. You know that? No. Oh, okay. I was like, what a strange name. This one is amazing. I hope I hope it's what... Okay, say it. Okay, let me, let me make sure I'm going to say it right on the first try. Hypnorotica. Yeah. No, I don't know that one either. Yeah, but I just but I saw the title. What and a thought, name, right? Yeah. Um, they shall overcome in Sylvia. So he does have other writing credits. Now, the reason why I brought that up first is because although Jake LaMotta has another book by credit for uh, a, a book called The Bronx Bull, which I'm guessing is again about him. It's another. Yeah, that was his other uh, nickname. Follow up. Jake, Jake to... LaMotta was known as the Bronx Bull or the Raging Bull. Okay, yeah. so he was like, I'll write two books, both about me. I'll just use different names. Um, but then brand. he had some like cameos in films. Like He kind of mm-hmm. entered into the world of acting. He's got of some sorts. acting credits, yeah. And several of his credits are from films that Peter Savage wrote. So that's where there's the connection there some not i mean he had a little bit part in the hustler an actual like really acclaimed film in its own right yeah um but he was in the runaways he also was in cauliflower cupids <laughs> then he was in two uh that i just had to call out because of the names as i like to do one was called confessions of a psycho cat i'm sorry what confessions of a psycho cat of a psycho cat Yes. Okay. Am I not saying that right? No, I just don't know what a psycho cat is. Me neither. I mean, all cats are kind of psycho. They are. But (laughs) how much crazier is this damn cat? But, um, and I had to bring this one up because this, in terms of me uh, usually noting really crazy film or TV names, this one is kind of at the top. I really got a like LOL out of this one. This is crazier than Hypnorotica? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I just thought it was funny. Okay. So he was in a film called Who Killed Mary? What's Her Name? I just think that's really <laughs> funny. And the way they spell that what's her name is is hilarious. So if anybody knows what that I movie mean, is about, please the tell. absolute disrespect <laughs> yeah. to Mary <laughs> What's Her even, Name. They can't even be bothered to remember her last name. But um, So that's Jake LaMotta, both his writing credits and acting credits. Mm. So, okay. So as far as the people who actually wrote the screenplay. Was that Jake LaMotta or Peter Savage? In terms of? The credits. Uh, I kind of went between them both. Got it. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the gentleman who actually wrote the screenplay. So I believe the first person that actually came on board to write it is a gentleman by the name of Mardik Martin. Hmm. And so he he has a couple 
amazing credits to his name um, and seems to have had a relationship with Scorsese because he also wrote Mean Streets um, and then New York, New York and The Cut. So that's some of his credits. But the very, very, very well-known gentleman who was part of this film is Paul Schrader. Okay. And so I think he took over the screenwriting uh, duties from Martin. And this is a gentleman that is very well known uh both for his probably i would say still leaning more towards his writing uh career but he's also been directing and so he he also is known for that so among his screenplay credits i mean talk about a heavy hitter we have taxi driver Mm -hmm. american gigolo okay the mosquito coast the last temptation use my words the last temptation of christ city hall Bringing Out the Dead, and your favorite movie, Derek, First Reformed. Yeah, he was uncredited for Cat People as well. I saw that, but uh, yeah, I let that one go. But of the screenplay credits that I just mentioned, he, I mean, he's directed far more than just what I'm listing, but he also directed American Gigolo as well as First Reformed. Hmm, Okay. So he does kind of the writer-director thing on some projects. Um, Yeah, I mean very acclaimed and has like a real aesthetic about his work like you can kind of tell when it's a paul paul schrader piece okay um and although i mean i was being a little snarky about first reformed because that wasn't really a movie that you or i really jived with i know that it received quite a bit of acclaim yeah. it was an oscar yeah. nominee and i just wasn't in a mood to be brought down that low (laughs) yeah it's um i mean i can see the the quality of the work but it just you know isn't isn't a feel-good movie to say the least i mean yeah i i after watching that i watched requiem for a dream just to feel better (laughs) just to feel better (laughs) so okay moving on to the gentleman we called out at the beginning of the show mr martin scorsese marty uh, Marty, we talk at length about him with our special guest, David, because there is just so much to speak of when it comes to this gentleman. Yeah. I mean, he is just a powerhouse in the world of cinema. Um, and because we do go on at length with David, I'm just going to kind of, I mean, I, I can't imagine somebody who would be listening to this podcast wouldn't be familiar with Scorsese. Um, but in case, just in case, just in case, if you're not, so this is a gentleman that has been nominated 14 times for different categories of Oscars. So not just director. He has, I think, a couple writing nominations and a couple best picture nominations as well for being like a producer on the film. Okay. Um, He was nominated for Raging Bull as best director, uh, did not win. And we talk about that special memory I have personally of seeing him finally, finally win for The Departed many, many years later. But, okay, so... Boy, oh boy, I have here 20, yeah, 20 different credits for him, and virtually every single one is, like, just a film that is is thought of very highly. I mean, like, he, he doesn't, he just doesn't really do trash work. Like, he's, he's, uh, he's pretty amazing. So, Mean Streets, mm-hmm. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Taxi Driver, mm-hmm. New York, New York, The King of Comedy, After Hours, The Color of Money. The Last Temptation of Christ, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, The Age of Innocence, Casino, Bringing Out the Dead, Gangs of New York, The Aviator, The Departed, Shredder Island, Hugo, 
The Wolf of Wall Street, and The Irishman. I mean, come on. Yeah. Come on with that. It's really ridiculous. <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. Wow. Uh, I mean, just out of curiosity, because we didn't talk about this with David, uh, what would you say is your favorite Scorsese movie? Uh, it might be The Aviator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I, there's enough... Well, so The Aviator and Gangs of New York are probably my two favorites of Me his too. because there there's more to them than just like they're they're all set in kind of like this brutal world, certainly Gangs of New York more than The Aviator, but there's just a little bit more. There's a little bit something else mm-hmm. in those movies that that can like draw me back to them. Um, you know, some of his other classics are are certainly classics, but they're not movies that I wouldn't necessarily go back to and mm-hmm. want to rewatch, mm-hmm. but I've seen the aviator a million times, seen gang New York over mm-hmm. and over again. Yeah. Um, that's funny. Cause I would call it the same two movies. Uh, I adore gangs of New York, particularly for the performance of, uh, Daniel day Lewis. I yeah. mean, I am absolutely captivated every single second he's on screen. So, just an amazing performance. And then for The Aviator, although I am, you know, generally a fan of DiCaprio's work, really what I love about that film is just the the reverence for the early days of film yeah. and cinema in Hollywood and the way that uh, Scorsese works that into the story. So, And I swear, I do really, really enjoy Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci. I just happen to pick the two movies. Right, right, right. Neither of them are in it. Well, that's an interesting point. And it kind of, you know, we'll see as I kind of go through other people's credits. We've talked about this before in terms of filmmakers kind of finding a crew yeah. that they like to work with. And then they become very um, monogamous with those people and work with them over and over again. And so that's certainly the case with Scorsese, both behind and in front of the camera. Yeah. Um, he kind of started out his career with being, you know, having De Niro in just so many of his films. And while The Irishman, his most recent work, brings back De Niro and he was Pesci. So, he was so committed to De Niro that he's like, I don't care if it doesn't work. We're going to make him look yeah. younger. Maybe it Which, worked. Which, questionably, if he did. Um, uh, yeah. But then in his later career, as you can tell from his credits, he's developed a very close relationship with Leonardo DiCaprio yeah. and has had him in a great deal of his work. So, OK, moving on to cinematography. Now, this is a gentleman. He's come up already a couple times in he our has. podcast. Oh. Um, we're talking about Mr. Michael Chapman, who just recently passed a few months ago. Uh, an incredible cinematographer. We did bring him up in both Scrooged and The Lost Boys um, from last season. But because it's a new season, mm-hmm. I am. I mean, we do talk about him a lot. That's something that really sets this film apart from other movies that we've talked about. Is that as David very eloquently, you know, discussed with us, so much of what has kept this film. Um, alive and a favorite of people isn't so much the story is just the beautiful craftsmanship yeah. that went into it i would i would say that's 100 percent correct for me mm-hmm. it's because i did not necessarily enjoy the story mm-hmm. or the characters i found like jake particularly just awful to watch in, in every scene yeah. that i saw him in i mean and, and he's not supposed to be a sympathetic character but just the way the movie was shot and in particular the scene with uh what was known as the saint valentine's day 
mm-hmm. boxing mass- mm-hmm. massacre that we talk about uh, with David. It was it was striking, and there have been so many boxing movies since this. I mean, probably fifty Rocky movies, the Creed movies. <laughs> so I was impressed at a lot of the the boxing, the choreography, how how tight a lot of that was, given that there have been so many opportunities for for other movies to surpass it. Mm-hmm. And in some ways they have, but in some ways I thought Raging Bull was still very impressive. Yeah, and I mean you bring up a really good point because Rocky does precede Raging Bull. One by, of them. By one of them. <laughs> yeah, by four of them. by four years. Um so Rocky was 76 and Raging Bull is 80. And so being aware and Rocky won best picture. So um being aware that they had this other film that inevitably Raging Bull would be compared to yeah. Uh, very deliberate choices were made. This, The choice to have the film in black and white also happened for other reasons, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't lost on the filmmakers that by having it in black and white, that'd be one way to distinguish it apart yeah. from Rocky. So that went into this decision-making. And then also one thing that Chapman decided to do differently is that, you know, Rocky for the actual boxing scenes, everything... Uh, is filmed from outside the ring. Mm-hmm. And so he made a deliberate choice to film within the ring to, again, set it apart from this other huge film that came out just a few years earlier. Yeah. So, okay, so Chapman never won an Oscar, was only nominated twice, shockingly. That's um, insane. Insane. Was nominated for Raging Bull as the general consensus, uh, you know, between you, me, and David, uh, we all agree that he probably should have won for Raging Bull. Um, but among some of his other credits... Taxi Driver, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which we will be doing later this season, Mm -hmm. actually. Uh, The Man with Two Brains, two films that we just did, The Lost Boys and Scrooge. So feel free to go back to those episodes if you want to hear more about Chapman there. Uh, And then, I mean, he does have range. We got Ghostbusters 2. We have Kindergarten Cop. Uh, He was nominated again for The Fugitive, a film that we both really love. Yeah, Rising Sun, which was... A pretty good Michael Crichton book and an okay Michael Crichton movie. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And then a couple of his later films, Primal Fear and Space Jam. So. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we are moving on to editing. Uh, Oh, my goodness gracious. This woman, Thelma Schoonmaker, she is, I mean, like I gush about her with David. Um just such a fan of her work and as we do discuss with him so she is a powerhouse in her own right eight oscar nominations three wins she did win for raging bull as i mentioned earlier mm-hmm. also won for best editing for the aviator and departed so she got two more back-to-back wins um i do go through all of the films like ones that i thought were like notable notable to to like speak of but I'll do it real quick here. We have King of Comedy, After Hours, The Color of Money, The Last Temptation of Christ, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, The Age of Innocence, Casino, Kundun, uh, Bringing Out the Dead, Gangs of New York, The Aviator, The Departed, Shutter Island, Hugo, The Wolf of Wall Street, The Irishman. So what do all those films have in common? Martin Scorsese. There you go. Yeah. So they have an amazing working relationship that has lasted like more than four decades strong. Um, And she's still working. So so good on her. She's pretty, yeah, incredible. pretty amazing. Okay. So moving on to the people in front of the camera. First time we have had a Robert De Niro film it is. in our lineup. Yeah. 
Um, so yes, he plays Jake LaMotta. Uh, again, <laughs> all these people connected to this film, I mean, are just pretty pretty amazing. He himself has eight Oscar nominations. He's had two wins. And yes, he did win four Best Actor for Raging Bull. Um, without looking, do you know what his other win was for? I don't. I don't. I, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> okay. Okay. What if I? Okay. What if I told you it was before Raging Bull? Oh, uh, Taxi Driver. No. Okay, that's all I got. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, the Deer Hunter. That would have been a good one. Um, no, he won for Godfather Part Two. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, best supporting actor. Okay. For that one. But uh, this is a gentleman. I mean, again, when you look at his uh, his resume of films, it's like, wow, okay. Uh, we got Mean Streets, like I just said, Godfather Part Two, Taxi Driver, New York, New York, The Deer Hunter, The King of Comedy, Once Upon a Time in America, The Mission, The Untouchables, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, Mad Dog and Glory, <laughs> Casino, Heat, which we just watched, yes. so good, uh, Wag the Dog. He was in both Analyze This and Analyze That. Yeah. He was also in Meet the Parents, Meet the Fockers, and Little Fockers, that trilogy. And then some of his more recent work, Silver Linings Playbook, Joker, and The Irishman. I would say one that I'd like to add, which I, I don't think you mentioned it. I was trying to keep up. There's so many. Uh, Ronan. He's excellent oh, okay. in, in Ronan, um, along with Sean Bean. Who, okay. Who meets an unfortunate end, as he does in so Aww. many things that he's in. But yeah, that's really that's another really great film that uh, that I thought he was in, along with Midnight Run. I don't know why that's not a great movie. Why but, I didn't uh, bring that one up? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I again, I pulled 20, so many. He's 20 his, films, yeah. but um, that all have some kind of like acclaim or like notoriety about them. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I gotta say, for like personally, I gravitate more towards De Niro's later work. Uh. He is a phenomenal actor. He is captivating anytime he's on screen. But I personally, like, I don't need to watch him and, like, analyze this or analyze that. I appreciate that, like, he has come to embrace comedy in his yeah. later career. Um, but I, like, I love him in Silver Linings Playbook. He's amazing in that. He's just, I mean, seeing him in Raging Bull, he was just terrifying. Yeah. In, in every scene, in every scene that he's in, you're just waiting. It's it's like there's a fuse that's been lit because mm -hmm. someone says the wrong thing or does the wrong thing or cooks a steak wrong or God forbid doesn't bring coffee fast enough. Mm -hmm. He's just, and there are so many like really long pauses where he's just like holding this intense look, looking at someone you're like, oh shit. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's great in this, obviously. And like you said, he's embraced kind of like this comedic nature where he's almost playing a caricature of some of his other intense characters, like definitely, in Meet the Parents. Well, I would say definitely or, analyze this. Yeah. 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 But it it makes me appreciate him in those roles more after seeing him in something like Raging Bull. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I love him, like I said, in Silver Linings Play, like, probably like I had just mentioned, my favorite is Heat. Yeah. Uh, I think that is probably my favorite role that he has taken on huh. yeah so all right moving on we have miss kathy moriarty yeah. who plays his second wife i mean poor first wife she just like she just disappears in this movie <laughs> i believe he was in fact married like six or seven times <laughs> what do you mean jake lamada in real life yeah 
Oh, like post Kathy or post Kathy? Total. Like, yeah. So if Vicky was a second wife, I believe, then I think he had five other wives. Wowzers. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> it was nice to know you, first wife. I don't even think I caught her name. But um, in any case, Kathy Moriarty, what a performance here. Uh, nominated for Best Supporting Actress. This was her first role. It's pretty amazing. She was 20 years old. Uh, I mean, like we talk about with David, I, not to take away from De Niro, but I was just captivated by her. I loved every single second she was on screen. And it's so interesting because, you know, this was her first role and she, you know, enjoyed much acclaim for it, obviously. And then she kind of had a slow rest of the 80s. She didn't do a lot. It was really in the 90s when her career kind of picked back up again. Probably because of Kindergarten Cop. Uh, Maybe that was the springboard <laughs> to her future success. But um, but yes, Kindergarten Cop is one of her credits, as well as Soap Dish, The Mambo Kings, Forget Paris, Copland, Crazy in Alabama. She also is in Analyze That. Yep. Um, I did a check. They're not married, as far as I can tell in the movie. So that would have been fun if she had actually played his wife. Um, that would have been too much. I would. I love that kind of stuff. I would have been all in. Um, and then also, Once Upon a Time, Brooklyn. Lots of movies where it's like Once Upon a Time in. Okay. Yo. Why not? Because we have Once Upon a Time in America, yeah. Once Upon a Time in Brooklyn, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, that's a lot. It's it is a lot. lot. Yeah. <laughs> and Patty Cakes is one of oh, her okay. most recent works. So, uh, yeah, she's amazing. Okay, moving on to Mr. Joe Pesci, who plays. Joe, or really Joey. Nobody calls he's, him Joe yeah, in the Joey. movie. Yeah. Um, he has three Oscar nominations, including Raging Bull, for which he was up for Best Supporting Actor. He actually won for Goodfellas. So that came about 10 years down the road for him. Okay. And so, as I just said, uh, he too was in Once Upon a Time in America. He was in not the first Lethal Weapon, but oh, he that's, was Lethal Weapon Two is probably what I first remember him from. Even though oh, okay, that was okay, eighty nine, I think. Uh, yeah, I remember that character. That's like my first introduction to Joe Pesci, I think, which is insane. Just that manic. Yeah, yeah. No, because yeah. of like how much energy he had, mm -hmm. and uh, that franchise of movies is already ridiculous. So for someone to somehow bring even more energy to it, right? Okay. Yeah. So he was in two, three, and four. Yeah. Uh, like I mentioned, he won Best Supporting Actor for Goodfellas. I got to say, uh, not to direct people away from our own podcast, but there's a really interesting conversation on Unspooled uh, between Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson about this very movie and, a, and, and very much in particular about the casting of Pesci. Hmm in this role so if you guys want to do a little bit of a deeper dive because goodfellas unfortunately is not an 80s movie so we can't cover it but if you want to hear more about it i really highly recommend you going to unspooled and finding that episode because it's a really interesting conversation between the two of them hmm. okay so the movie that i think of first when i think of joe pesci yeah home alone that's fair yeah uh, if i think of lethal weapon 2 as the, like the first time that I really like noticed him, I still think of like my one of my favorite movies that he's in is My Cousin Vinny. And yes, and please tell our audience what you tell me when My Cousin Vinny comes up. Portions of that movie were used in I think my civil procedure law class just to show examples of like 
there were actually it's one of the more realistic as far as courtroom procedure as opposed to like some overly dramatic uh legal type movies so i thought that was interesting and maybe that's why i'm not a litigator because i had a civil <laughs> procedure professor showing me my cousin Vinny. i don't know maybe <laughs> Thank you, Derek Dinky Esquire. Yeah. Uh, okay, so he was both in Home Alone and Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. And then he had, I mean, this kind of kicks off the 90s for him, Goodfellas and Home Alone. He had a great decade where he was in JFK, My Cousin Vinny, A Bronx Tale, Casino, Good Shepherd. And he's um, become much, much more selective Yeah. Uh, in his later career. For reasons unknown, I'm not really sure why he has kind of taken a step back. Probably because of Gone Fishing and Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. Possibly. Yeah. But he was in The Irishman. And as we talk about with David, I think we got this on tape. He's absolutely my favorite part of that movie. Yeah. No, agreed. He, yeah. Because you you know him from all these movies where he just has this insane energy. And in The Irishman, he's just so calm and measured. Mm -hmm. It's great. He's really, really amazing in it. Okay. So moving on to some of the supporting characters in the film. Oh, Salvi, otherwise known as Frank Vincent. Yeah, the guy, he did nothing wrong. He was just super... Poor Salvi. Just wanting to hang out. And to be honest, I've never seen a mob guy just get his ass handed to him the way that he did. And, but and if you no... have seen it, it's probably at the hands of Joe Pesci. So. And that's just it, is that like... Uh, the Lamanas were not part of the mob. And so the fact that there was like no retaliation for it, I was like kind of shocked by. <laughs> um, but OK, so here's what's funny about Frank Vincent. Now, if you're like, who is this Frank Vincent? He is a figure that like just go Google his name, because even if you don't recognize the name, you'll recognize the face. For sure. He is one of those guys that was in like virtually every mob related movie from the 80s on. Uh, and unfortunately, he's no longer with us. But uh I had to call this out because I thought this was so interesting. So one of his first credits that I put down was a movie called Stiffs huh, from okay. 1985. Then he was in another movie also called Stiffs from 2010. Uh, was it a remake? No. Okay. He played, well, okay, I shouldn't say that. I don't know <laughs> if it's a remake, but he didn't play the same character. Well, what did he play in the first one? I don't remember. I didn't looks, go that. It looks like he played I a mafia. He was casted as mafia thug in Stiffs. Sure. Yeah. That that checks out. Yeah. Um, but I was just like, how many people are in movies where like it's the same title? Anyway, so some of his credits, Wise Guys. Um, it seems like he had a relationship with uh, Spike Lee because oh, okay. he was in Do the Right Thing. Um, then he goes back to Goodfellas, another mob movie, Scorsese. But then he's in Jungle Fever. Okay. as well uh and then back to scorsese casino uh and then he was also in copland made men shark tale i had to bring that one up because nice. that was a fun one and then maybe what most people know him from is from his long stint on the sopranos yeah the tv show so that is frank vincent okay had to bring up this gentleman because mm -hmm. oh uh, so in the in the movie, his name is Tommy Como, but uh, and maybe people don't even know this actor by his actual name, uh, actor by the name of Nicholas Colasanto. I think that's right. Yeah, I'd like to think so. Yeah. So a lot of TV appearances. What's interesting is that I'm over these last three people that I'm going to cover 
prior to him, most of these actors have like kind of stayed in the film world for the most part. Yeah. Um, and now we're getting into kind of like what we have seen with other actors throughout all of our podcasts, these people who are in just like a ton of TV, just making kind of one-off appearances. And that was the case with uh, Calasanto as well. He was on the TV series Run For Your Life, which I'm not familiar with, but he had kind of like a recurring role. So that was one of his more like longer stays on television. Okay. But what people I'm going to say pretty confidently would know him from above anything else as he's coach. Yeah. From Cheers. Ernie coach. Yeah. And Tuso until he was, um, you know, ultimately Woody Harrelson, I think, took over. Yeah, because he that, passed away. That role. But yeah. Yeah. Um, all the, he was he was on that for, what, three years? Yeah. Yeah. He was phenomenal on that show. I love, like, he is hands down my favorite character. Like, the whole diane and sam thing okay great fine but but <laughs> just the cornerstone of the show yeah i know but like <laughs> coach oh and and like i'm getting like emotional about it because um i just think that that show lost its heart when he passed away yeah and um and then to i mean sorry to all the cheers fans out there but like then once uh <laughs> shelly long left i was out um, I mean, I didn't really watch it as a kid, but like, like after the fact, his Kirstie and, Alley years were tough. Yeah, and I know some people love those Kirstie Alley years, but I'm not one of them. Okay, so moving on to real quickly, we have Teresa Saldano who plays Joey's wife, Lenore. Okay. So, um, again, same, lots of TV appearances. And then I had to call this out because I was a fan. She voiced one of the characters on the TV series New Kids on the Block. Whoa. Thought that was really interesting. There was a, was it animated? Yes. There was an animated New Kids on the Block TV series. There sure was. Wow. Yep. Yep. Well, yep. She was in an episode of MacGyver too. Yes. And then the last thing that I was just going to bring up for her is that she was uh, had like a recurring role on the Commish. So she had the last one I'll bring up because the show was just so damn ridiculous. It was called Werewolf, and it was about a guy who was bitten by a werewolf. She was on a couple episodes of that. Okay. And the whole point of the show is like, is this guy going to find like the werewolf that made him a werewolf so that he can't, he can no longer be a werewolf? No, where no longer werewolfing. I don't think. I don't think there was. <laughs> yeah, there was never a resolution to that show. Damn that show! I just wanted to say that. Okay. Fair enough. Well, perfect jumping off point yeah. <laughs> for, <laughs> for moving, anything. <laughs> for moving into our film synopsis. Oh, yeah. So, ready? Ready? For I'm ready to, for okay. it. Okay. The life of boxer Jake LaMotta, whose violence and temper that led him to the top in the ring, destroyed his life out of it. Yeah, that's pretty succinct. I have no... It's not really a complete sentence, but it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah. I think that is a really nice way of putting it because I think for somebody that maybe just goes into this movie cold and sees it, it probably is kind of hard to parse out, like, what is the story that's being told here, you know? And so I think when you put it in this context that all the things that made him such a great boxer in the ring were the exact same things that destroyed the rest of his life, then for, it makes yeah. sense. For his style of fighting, because he, like, he wasn't... I don't. I think he was just an incredibly tough fighter, known for a legendary hard chin 
he could take a beating and he could dish a beating out. But like, it, it makes sense that like for him, what made him a great fighter is what also destroyed his life. I don't think necessarily that's, that's like the necessary set of ingredients to be a successful fighter. It's just, that was like this guy's situation and it destroyed him. Mm -hmm. It destroyed him in like professionally and personally mm -hmm. to the point where it seemed like he had, he had nothing and no one mm -hmm. at the end. Yeah, absolutely. It's a real uplifting movie. I cannot recommend it enough. <laughs> All right. So you mentioned this at the top of the show. We have a montage. Yeah, there's, there's actually a montage there's in this. A mo I couldn't not, believe it. Not like five, like Tootsie, like where it's just like... Well, yeah, maybe because we were desensitized by Tootsie or we've just gotten used to the fact that we learned a lot of our favorite 80s movies don't, in fact, have montages. <laughs> so when it came up in this, like we were halfway through it when I like kind of jumped up and said, hey, it's a montage. And also, I mean, one of the things about this particular film, because of what we were speaking of earlier and that it's a black and white movie, this montage like really actually kind of sticks out. Because and I, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It sticks out because it's the one part of the movie that is colorized. Oh yeah. And so uh, it, the way that I interpret the montage, I do. Is think it really? Yeah. I I but did not even but notice it's like that. that real kind of light, okay. kind of faded okay. <laughs> type of coloration. Um, so it's about forty-two minutes in. It's lasts for a whopping two minutes. Um, basically this part of the movie <laughs> is the only part of the movie that shows like happy times within yeah. the LaMotta family. Um, it, and it, and it works on several levels because first of all, you do get this very brief glimpse of when times were good, yeah. um, between namely Jake and Vicky. Uh, but we see, you know, we see in quick succession, Jake and Vicky getting married, um, we also see Joey getting married. We see them starting families. Yeah. And so it's it's kind of this really bittersweet. And it's kind of, well, it's not in the middle of the movie, but it, it's kind of this like real strong juxtaposition to the before and after of the montage of just all the chaos that Jake causes in his life. And so I think it I think it's incredibly effective for all of those different reasons. Yeah, I think... You know, we already see how awful the relationship is between him and his first wife. And I think it was necessary to at least give us this, like, this sense of some length of time passing and showing that at at least some point there was ostensibly some kind of happy relationship mm -hmm. between between Jake and Vicky. Mm -hmm. I, I suspect that that relationship was probably troubled for yeah. for, for a good part of it. Yeah. Um, but no, it was it was effective to to like kind of get things moving. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and it it gets us uh, across the passage of time yeah. to back to where the quote action is. Um, yeah. I gotta say though, as much as we've been kind of joking about how much of a downer this movie is, there were a couple moments where I had laugh out loud moments. Oh and really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, because you just you just uh, sparked it for me. When you were talking about his first wife, I got to say, maybe it wasn't supposed to be funny. Maybe I, like, shouldn't have been laughing at this. Okay. But when they had their fight and she, like, storms into their bedroom, when he's like, let's be friends. Yeah. I thought that that was just so funny. Like, that really cracked me up. And so that, to me, was a hysterical moment. And then also when Joey is... um 
was was it with Vicky or was it with the first wife? No, it couldn't have been. It had to have been with uh, Vicky. When he was calling, where... when Jake was calling him, or no? No, when when Joey's like, take her out for a night on the town, you know, like oh, yeah. do it up big, and yeah, it was definitely with Vicky. But then he's like, but don't but don't tell my wife because I'm not taking her out. Like yeah. it, <laughs> I just thought that, that was so good too. I think uh, what what <laughs> I laughed at the hardest was when um, after Jake and Joey had their falling out and at. Vicky's suggestion Jake tries calling him and Joey can hear that there's someone on the phone and he gives a very concise message to what the other person he thinks it's Selby he yeah and he just he he has a line that I won't even try to recreate but it's amazing it's amazing yeah Yeah. that is it yes yes and that we joked about having that as the opening it was almost the intro that was almost the intro um yeah so there are some whether it's intentional or not some lighter moments of levity that like break the just oppressiveness of the film at times it's just it's so intense that I think at moments they I don't think they were intended maybe they were like comical just to show the contrast and like going from this violent confrontation to like, Hey, let's be friends. But it, yeah, it it was like funny in sense of just seeing how fucked up this character is. And sometimes, I mean, it's something that's said all the time. Sometimes you laugh out of discomfort. Yeah. And, and so maybe that's what it causes that reaction when you're watching something like that. No one in that scene found it funny. Right. But I don't know if Jake would find anything funny in his earlier life. What do you mean um, funny? Yeah, exactly. So, okay. Before we dive into our conversation with David, I just wanted to bring up one quick thing that I thought you and, and our listeners would find interesting. Oh. So when De Niro won for Best Actor playing LaMotta, LaMotta was at that Oscar ceremony. Okay. So how trippy is that for both of them to be the person watching this other man win an oscar for playing you yeah i mean that must have really fed the ego i gotta think but then after jake lamada saw the movie he went back to vicky and asked was i really that bad and she was like no you were worse right so it's really it must have been really interesting to see someone win an academy award for almost showing how awful of a person you were in real life. But true. Not even all the way. I still think he was probably like, yeah, when <laughs> No, no. I don't think he would even make that connection. Right. If if the movie was accurate in any way in portraying how he processed things, you're right. I think you just would have taken it as like, this is amazing. Right. <laughs> like, and then I think that that has to be likewise then a really trippy moment for De Niro to be you know, winning the, like, he has a really interest, like, in terms of both of his wins, because for, for this one, like I said, he's winning this Oscar as the man that he portrayed is sitting right there. Yeah. And then also what is so interesting about his character is that I think, um, since we've had a one or two other people do the same, but, you know, for him winning for playing, uh, you know, Vito Corleone, which was a role first brought to the screen by Marlon Brando, who also won the Oscar for that role. Like, how interesting, you know, and in both counts. It would be but, like when Taron Egerton won for Rocket Man. Yes. And Elton John was there. Wonderful. Yeah, that's except, ex- exactly what it is. Except Elton John is, like, kind of cool. Like, he's kind of cool. A, guy. A, I mean, I've quite heard as... he's a little bit of a D. De- I'm not no going to go. I'm not gonna, yeah, he's not Jake LaMotta. But <laughs> anyway, okay, so on that note, yeah. let's uh, <laughs> go into our conversation with David. Let's do it. 
And so we are beyond thrilled to have with us today on the show, amazing indie film producer, David Tomei. David, thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you guys so much for having me. Absolutely. And we're, we're really stoked because we are covering a film that is truly unlike anything that we've covered on the podcast so far. Yeah, it really is. And and it's really exciting because it's a different kind of film, but also a really acclaimed and important film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we really appreciate that you're here to chat with us about it. And I think we should, because I feel like, okay, we're talking Scorsese, De Niro, Oscar, like we're talking about so much that we should just dive in. Yeah, I okay. agree. Yeah. David, as I usually do, and I'm so... So curious to know your answer on this. I would like to know when was the first time you saw this film? And if you can recall, what were your reactions to it? How did you feel um, about the film? So I was four. No. Um, <laughs> That's what I was. You're, you're not being serious, right? No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I initially saw Raging Bull. I was, a, I think, a sophomore in college. Um, when I had seen it for the first time, at least that I can remember. Um, and at the time when I was in school, um, you know, you're kind of learning the ins and outs of editing and cinematography and how to direct a performance and think, you know, the nuts and bolts of how to make a movie. And, um, when I had seen Raging Bull, I just had this resonant feeling with me that I'd seen something really extraordinary in terms of the craft. Mm-hmm. Um, much less so the story or the character. I'm sure we're going to talk about that a great deal. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but the, as I'm sure you guys noticed too, the marriage between the cinematography and the editing in this film in particular is like, was leaps and bounds uh, above anything that I'd seen to that point. And um, for myself until that point, it really cemented his place with like 2001 or the Godfather or Moonlight for me that it kind of reset a standard of excellence uh, in terms of execution of the craft and how it was deployed. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I, I also feel like this is going to be very different from your other podcast because we talk a lot about, I know you guys talk a lot about craft and you talk a lot about story, but this one is like, there's almost really no story to it. It's really just mm-hmm. Jake lashing out at literally anything and everyone for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, um, that, is, that is an excellent that's, synopsis. That's a great right. little <laughs> one sentence log line. <laughs> yeah. And, and listen, like Jake Lamott is a horrible character. And even, uh, after seeing the movie, he asked Vicky Lamada, he was like, was I really that bad? She's like, you were worse than that, dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, it, you know, Jake Lamada is nothing to aspire to, but um, the craft, the attention to detail and uh, kind of the expressionistic style that Scorsese deployed for it was, it resonated with me so much because um, on an impressionable, you know, 19 year old at the time, uh, it it just showed like if you really pay attention to those small details and you have a very clear vision for what you want to achieve, you know you at least have a shot at something really resonant and impactful coming coming out on the back end. And um, that to me was something to aspire to. Now Jake as a character, I mean, 
where do you want to start where, when it comes to cheating on his wife, cheating on his <laughs> wife and marrying an underage woman, introducing underage women to men and just being outright domestically violent and abusive. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's a fun guy, has, you know. Um, he has few redeeming qualities. <laughs> yeah, very, very, few, like to the point where you almost, he's almost entirely unsympathetic. Well, and that yeah. is, a, that is an incredible comment because, um, you know, as, as we do and just kind of like researching the film a little bit, I did not realize that actually at one point executives were like, uh, this isn't working because he's just a overall really awful person. And so right. I, I think I guess, one of the producers was like, this guy's a cockroach. Like yes. literally said that. Exactly. And so, uh, which being I, in LA having dealt with cockroaches from time to time, <laughs> Not that far off. Pretty uh, appropriate comparison. Um, And so to have Scorsese and De Niro, um, non-credited, but to to do some rewrites on it to make him more sympathetic, I'm like, what? I need to see what the script was before they got their hands on it. Because, like... Um, it, yeah, I, I'm not sure if there's a lot of sympathy elicited for this character, at least like when I'm watching the film, but yeah, to, to your points though, in terms of who he was as a person, actually the thing that, and maybe this does come from like me thinking about story quite a bit, that sort of thing. But I was like, why, why is he the person he is? Yes. Like I was really wanting to see so, and something about the childhood so that Jake and Joey went through. One, one thing that I've learned recently after, after watching the film and seeing what a miserable guy this was, is that apparently he had hearing loss in one of his ears yes. and a lot of, or I don't know how much, but to some degree that like the, that paranoia and anxiety or whatever he had around other people was in part related to that. And I thought it was interesting that I don't think that's addressed no. at, at right. all in the movie. And if you're, if you're trying to think of ways to make him even the smallest bit, a more sympathetic mm-hmm. character, I'm curious why I'm sure there was a reason why to not include that mm-hmm. but i thought i thought that was interesting um because that's a yeah, really great point I, I was so last night was literally the first time i've watched this movie from start to finish i i knew of it but i had not watched the whole thing and i was uncomfortable during virtually every scene because every scene that he's in where there's anyone else in the scene with him I'm afraid for them because yes. I don't know what he's going to do, but I'm pretty sure he's going to do something awful to them. Right. A hundred percent. And I, what I think is really interesting and what I had noted down after watching it was, um, was the, the correlation between Jake as a comedian and Jake as a boxer. Yes. You know, he's there to, and he really is like a caged animal in that way. Um, you know, he's in his dressing room, he gets escorted out, he performs, he, you know, beats his opponent to a pulp, and then no one sees him again until he comes back out to beat someone to a pulp. Um, and I, and I, I didn't draw this uh, specific correlation till just now, but um, part of what motiv- motivated Jake could have been that since he did have trouble hearing and he, he had this such... Uh, paranoia about himself and was so insecure as a result that he sought out people cheering for him because it was something that he could Mm -hmm. hear over kind of the minutia of the rest of his life that he could hear 
cheers from a crowd or he could hear a, a laugh, you know, if he ever got one uh, from someone in his, in his club. Um, you know, I, 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 that didn't click for me until just now. So I, I wonder how that played into his motivations to elicit some sort of response and some sort of praise for himself. That's, I, what an interesting point, because that hadn't occurred to me either. And I, I do absolutely think you're onto something, which I'm, I'm glad you brought that up for several reasons. One being that was something that didn't actually, I mean, look, I, I think this film is tremendous. So like me nitpicking here, I guess, but like, I, I wasn't really understanding how he became who he was in later life because if I had seen something from when he was younger, like during his actual boxing days where he did have like throwaway funny lines his or comedy or, chops. Yeah. Like <laughs> I was like, how does somebody go from being this like brutal boxer who seems to have no joy in his life? Who, who I, we don't see him ever making anybody laugh. Um, I mean, I guess Vicky has moments of like her, you know, little kind of enigmatic smile sure. with him when they were courting. Um, but then to go to this guy who like is trying to be a stand-up comedian, I was like, how does that happen? But right. that ties it together for me, what you were just saying. That makes sense to me that he it comes but both parts of his life comes from an insecurity and needing to feel some type of validation. So that that makes a ton of sense. That that's an amazing insight. Yeah, I I mean it's on the surface they're completely incongruous especially in relation to his character um but i just I, I found that to be so interesting because the idea of jake as a caged animal is so baked into the film you know they have they have, jake walks out and he's in like a cheetah print or a leopard print robe um i don't know if you did you guys pick up on the uh they incorporated animal sound effects into the sound design when he's like charging after somebody. Um, and, and they also have Jake, um, uh, you know, he consistently, uh, consistently Scorsese would deploy, you know, high key lighting so that there would have this mirage effect. So it kind of felt sort of primal too. Um, and I, I felt that was so interesting that they, painted Jake as this sort of animal and uh, really right from the start when he has the fight with his wife over a steak and his neighbor, Larry is like, you know, you're being such an animal, you're an animal. He thinks it's hysterical, but later on in the film when he's, you know, like visually the imagery of him being like forced into this stockade in this very small cell in like a Dade County prison and, you know, bashing his head against the wall, punching the wall. And he finally says, I'm not that bad. I'm not an animal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, as we talk about Jake's character and this movie as a whole, you know, a big theme of Scorsese's films is redemption. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a fine line between redemption and recognizance Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. Jake, because I, at least from the audience's point of view, I don't know if I can see Jake is redeemable, but I do see the, I do see how in Jake's mind, he can at least recognize that he's what he's done. Yeah. And whether or not that's redeemable, I don't know, but I do think it's like, 
it's it's less about Jake being redeemed and more so the question of is recognizance itself a form of redemption? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might be the best or the most that he's capable yeah. of. I right. mean, you right. even just speaking to that point, uh, I mean, congratulations to you because you just, by virtue of what you said, made me feel a little bit of sympathy, <laughs> for, for, which I never had. I mean, in fact, you know, I, I mean, I've made a point of saying like um, any kind of awards, you know, they are not the end all be all. They don't necessarily indicate, you know, yeah. the, the true worth of something. But I do find it really interesting that, uh, I mean, look, obviously, De Niro, amazing performance, if anything, for the, like, physicality and, like, yeah. the... That's why I was so struck by that. I, I, I hadn't watched Raging Bull in a long time, but I was so struck by watching it this time, just how physically demanding and dominant mm-hmm. of a performance that uh, this character called for him to give. It, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, we could go on a whole tangent about like actors who choose to like really punish their bodies yeah. uh, for roles. I, I, I gotta say, I'm not totally, I, I, I guess I can appreciate their commitment, um, sure. but I personally am very uncomfortable when I see uh, actors, especially like, I mean, somebody who does it all the time is Christian Bale. Yeah. Um, and I have to worry about him. Like, well, <laughs> of course, Stacey was worried about De Niro yes, in this. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I appreciate so much the lengths he went to. And, you know, from what I read, um, I kind of take everything with a grain of salt. But that sure. he did, you know, actually enter himself in, in a few boxing matches and won some of them. And LaMotta, for his part, um, said that he was actually quite a legitimate middleweight boxer. Mm-hmm. Um, so but that's small hands, small hands. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I appreciate that. My point that I'm trying to get to though, is that to be quite honest, the performances that I personally was much more invested in were those by Kathy Moriarty and Joe Pesci. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm sure to some degree that's deliberate that there is more nuance to who those characters are because they're not these quote animals. They're just right. human beings who are existing with this gentleman. That's probably not the app. They're, they're, no they're like pain but, bodies for him. Yes. You know? Yes. But I got to say that anytime they were in a scene, I was captivated by them. I wasn't really as invested in De Niro and yeah. and and the character of Lamada, mm-hmm. as I was in Joey and and Vicky. Well, what I what captured my attention whenever all, you know any combination of those uh, individuals were in a scene, they did such a good job of communicating to me that they were that there was just palpable tension mm-hmm. and that they were so hyper aware. Like every goddamn conversation that they had with Jake they knew was just a minefield. You say the wrong thing. And so while they're trying to think of not saying the wrong thing, they inadvertently say the wrong thing Mm -hmm. and it sets them off. And and now you're just like, how are they going to get out of this without it becoming physical? Mm -hmm. And in many cases it it, it would. Right. And and, and that's a, that's a great point to bring up because what I noticed was, uh, you know, Jake asked Joey if he slept with Vicky and he says to Joey, he's like, you keep giving me all these answers, but you're not giving me the right answer. Mm-hmm. And he finally, you know, he goes upstairs and he asks Vicky if she slept with anyone else and she lashes out back to him. 
completely sarcastically, at least yeah. how I took it. And he right. is so unbelievably insecure and paranoid that he just took the answer he wanted so that he could yeah. laugh out at someone. Absolutely. Yeah. I got to say um, that. And that's why the reason why I referenced Oscars is because De Niro actually won for his performance, whereas Pesci and Moriarty, they were nominated rightly. So in my opinion, um, did not win, but I thought they gave, I mean, especially for Moriarty first role, 20 yeah. years old. I mean, yeah. incredible. Unbelievable. Yeah. The, I, incredible I, performance. Yeah. yeah. I absolutely loved her. And the thing that I appreciated the most is that, I mean, how do I, I, I feel like uh, it's tricky waters when you're talking about somebody who is in an abusive situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I appreciate though that she like held her own. I, it, it pains me that she stayed with him for as long as she did, Yeah, but she still like, I, I did fear for her because obviously, I mean, he knocked her out in one scene and, mm-hmm. um, and so he certainly, uh, could have, you know, and maybe we didn't see scenes where he is more brutally beating her. Um, but she still had like a, her own fierceness about her. Uh, yeah, very much I so. Loved, you know, like just yeah. that look in her eyes. Well, her defiance in hanging out with Salvi, yeah, the chillest character Poor in this Salvi. entire movie. Right. right. Oh my goodness, he did nothing. <laughs> that guy did nothing wrong at any point. No. He was always, he's always just like, hey, I just want to hang out. Yeah, right. <laughs> have a good time a couple drinks yeah, yeah. he's like you know and, and he even says like you know we're innocent here like there's there's nothing going on yeah. and, but and you know it so plays into jake's paranoia and this is what i what i meant about um just being kind of fascinated with the craft when i had first seen it but scorsese's use of slow motion to just reinforce mm-hmm. how jake processes the world yeah and how the slightest interaction, no matter how cordial or polite or innocuous, he's like, well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. You know, what, what was that just going on right there? Um, and I thought the physicality of De Niro's performance contrasted with Vicky's just sort of stoicism mm-hmm. uh, and her, uh, her stillness in comparison to how Jake is just constantly lashing out at anything and everything and everyone. Uh, whereas Vicky is just very much stoic speaks her truth, which is very mm-hmm. important. And, um, and very clearly points out the double standard that she's held to by both of them, mm-hmm. both Jake and mm-hmm. Joey, when she's at the club with Salvi yeah. and, you know, she's like, look, I, I go out with with one person. Like, I go out to hang out with my friends. I come home and I get smacked. And then as Joey's trying to sort of, like, get her out of there, I guess. Like, I, w- one question I have for you guys is, like, what motivated Joey in that moment to, like, get try and get Vicky out of there? But Joey says to Vicky, he's like, don't make me go nuts in this place. It's like, Joey, that's entirely within your control here, pal. Mm-hmm. Like... <laughs> Like you're putting that on her. Like this is entirely within your control to handle this, you know, smoothly, whichever it is that you needed to handle, which because I, oh, I, I was just going to rephrase the question of like, what do you think his motivation was to sort of get Vicky out of there? I think he was trying to protect both her and literally everyone else at that table 
and Jake, because he was afraid how Jake would respond to hearing that she was there for her sake, for Salvi's sake and other people there. And he also probably knew as Jake later says, he's going to kill someone. Mm -hmm. He was probably afraid that he was going to kill the wrong person Mm -hmm. and end up getting killed himself. Yeah, I think, I mean, the way that I interpreted that scene, because I think that's a great question because they're, they're, it, it in some ways doesn't click for me. Um, the best that I can try to explain it is that I felt like Joey knew he was kind of in an impossible situation. Um, I think deep down, he knew that there was absolutely nothing happening between Vicky and Selvi. But of course, his alliance is with his brother. And he knew that if, if uh, Jake was made aware of Vicky being out with Selvi, that something potentially much, much worse would happen. He's just looking for a reason to, to fuck up Selvi basically throughout the entire movie. And that too. Right. Jake, yeah. Jake is. Oh, Jake. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jake is like, just give me a reason. Yeah. He, and Joey's like, I don't want him to have this reason. Yeah. So, and, but then I also think that as that scene evolves, I do think what happens is that Joey himself loses control of himself. I don't think he ever was going to take it that far with Selby, but I think he has his own kind of demons and rage. And I think that honestly really took over. He has the Um, light version. Yes. (laughs) Jake Jake got the IPA version. He has like the Coors Light version. (laughs) Exactly. But that that was funny. That was something that uh, uh, Derek and I were talking about when we were watching it because, I mean... What, what did you say that you I thought that one of uh, one of Scorsese's great talents is convincing me that Pesci is like this powerhouse of violence. <laughs> Cause he's, he's, you know, he's uh, on the smaller side. Um, but that being said, he's convinced he, me that he could literally run through a brick wall and murder everyone. Seriously. In <laughs> um, when, when he is just taking it to Selby, I'm like, you know what? Actually, for who this character is in this story, I get it because he spars with Jake all yeah. the time. Yeah. Right. So and never gets though, to give any of it back. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I think there's a couple different things going on in that scene, and that's the best way that I can interpret what what happened. Um, the pro move of hopping over the car, though. Yeah. He jumps Getting over. Away. He Clutch. climbs over the. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, an, an, an excellent move. Mm-hmm. And and I got to say, although um, to just kind of very quickly bring it back to Vicky, although I, I'm not one to condone violence, I was so rooting for her. Like when Jake actually leaves and she starts running after him and she starts beating on him. I'm like, yes, yeah, please. Like, just yes, let it out. Um, I, I just loved that that ferociousness of her character as well. Yeah. Um, and I guess that makes a little bit of sense then for why they were attracted to each other, because obviously he has it to a nth degree, but they both kind of share that um, that fire inside of them. He's just unhinged uh, by it. Right. But um, so, I mean, I, I would say, though, that honestly, um, the the character for whom my heart bro- really broke was Joey. Yeah, uh, I. I saw a character who was legitimately fiercely and deeply loyal to his brother and really truly loved him. And I just was seeing scene after scene of Jake really emotionally abusing his brother and, and just making it ultimately impossible for him to have a relationship with him. And I, at the, 
you know, that final scene of them together after being estranged for so long, it again broke my heart, but I was also really proud of Joey for not giving in. And although he says like, yeah, yeah, I'll call you. I don't believe he's calling. Yeah. Him. I was going to ask you guys about that. Um, Cause that was something I had written down with that scene in particular, because it's very, very few times in the movie. Do we actually see Jake's face reflected anywhere? It, mm-hmm. It's only after he uh, takes a dive for the, or, or no, I'm sorry. It's after he loses the fight to Robinson and they're like, you know, Robinson's going to enter the army. That's why they rule in his favor or whatever. And Jake's like, you know, I've done a lot of bad things and maybe it's coming back to me. And they have that very long push in of him looking in the mirror at himself. And this is, I think only like the second or third time in the movie when he's talking to Joey and you see Jake's face reflected on the top of the car. Mm. And I, I, I just, I so wonder what, joey's thinking and i think you're right i don't think i don't think he calls him i think that he was thinking the same thing that a lot of those characters that interacted with jake were thinking which is what do i have to do or say to get out of this situation Mm -hmm. right that's a great point i still don't feel safe around him i also would be remiss if i didn't comment on joe pesci morphing into tony shaloub as much like seriously david did you did you at all think that when you saw him in that final scene honest to god i haven't until right now i'm gonna get up in the middle of the night to go pee and be like yeah you know what you're right he looks exactly like tony shaloub like that is an amazing disguise and he still found him i know um, I, 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 that genuinely hadn't clicked for me until right now. So mustache, yeah. You know, and, and I, I also, I also thought that scene was so fascinating because um, it was just, it, it at least showed a different manifestation of Jake's physicality. And mm-hmm. whereas like their first scene together is like, Joey, I want you to hit me in the face. I want you to fucking lit. Well, I'm sorry. Can we swear on this? Uh, absolutely. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, where he's like, I want you to hit me in the face. I want you to fucking lay me out. And, you know, they're punching each other for like no reason. And, um, now, you know, Jake's coming back, he's coming back to Joey and he's like, Joey, like, let's be friends. Like, and he like grabs a hold of him. He's like, Joey, like I, I think in Jake's head, he's like, I want to figure this out. I want to, you know, I want us to be friends, but he manifests all of that physically. You know, he Mm -hmm. like gives him some kisses on the cheek and everything. And, and, Joey like barely hugs him back and it's just yeah. like, I'll call you, I'll call you. And he just, yeah. and he's on his way. Um, and that first scene when they are going at it with each other and, and you know, Joey's punching Jake and his cuts are opening up and Joey says, what are you trying to prove? Mm-hmm. A- and I kept asking myself that throughout the whole movie. And I don't know if I have an answer. Like what is Jake actually trying to prove again, coming back to just what is, what motivates him? Absolutely agree. And uh, one thing that I just wanted to say really quickly to to your point about the final scene between them, that body language is everything 100%. in that scene. Oh my goodness! I mean, and and I do appreciate that Scorsese made a choice to just really hold on that yeah. because he shot that, that scene very coldly. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and just you know, and I feel like like I I hope I hope that maybe people haven't gone through this but i think that a lot of individuals have experienced a personal relationship 
where, you know, you take it and you take it and then you take and then you're like enough and you're just done with it. And you just see that in the way that Pesci allows himself to be hugged, but he's kind of arching his back a little bit the entire time. He's stiff. He's uncomfortable. And then in contrast, you have De Niro, just like you said, I mean, to the point where it's like, wow, we're really hanging on this moment where he's just kissing and kissing and and just, you know, the affection on his end. It is it is so painful and heartbreaking to watch that because it is it is really, you know, seeing this confirmation of the death of this relationship between two brothers. And um, yeah, that that for me was the most was where where the most emotional impact was for me. Um, as far as, you know, what you were saying about, like, what is he trying to prove? I think that's that's a great question. And that's why, like, I really wish that there was something that we could have. I mean, even if we're talking about hearing loss or, uh, you know, it could be something that, you know, we were talking about this off record, but um, CTE and sure. and, yeah. you know, and and him becoming just, you know, the it, it's reinforcing the violence and the outbursts and the what have you. Mm-hmm. But. I don't know what he was trying to prove, but <clears throat> excuse me, the the fighter Jake LaMotta did. He was reputed to have one of the one of the greatest chins. He had like a really thick skull, thick, thick, strong jaw. So I don't know if he was just trying to like he, he could have taken that like he could have hit him over the head with a chair and he probably would have been fine because he could just he could just take, he could take punishment. It. Yeah. He was known for just taking beatings in in his fights, but doling out just enough more punishment mm-hmm. to to win. But like Joey knew that, mm-hmm. so what's the point? Right. <laughs> what what is the point? What was he trying to prove? It's impossible for me to know what he was trying to prove in so many scenes. I mean, again, you know, Jake is on the extreme of the spectrum, but both brothers are hotheads. I mean, you can even see that Joey individually, like the way he treats his wife, you know, so he's not it's it's not just Jake in, in terms of, uh, you know, that kind of personality, although he is, like I said, off the scale. But like, I, I just want to know what what was that upbringing like? Because how do you have someone like Joey? OK, he's a hothead, but overall, he's uh I don't know, a functional human being, I guess, in some ways. He has, he has some uh, modicum of common sense. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Jake and and I I just, you know, me I don't know, maybe I need to read Lamada's autobiography. What to, I'm hearing is that you want a Raging Bull prequel. Well, there I mean, I I feel like you're leading me to uh to the fact that there was. Perhaps. Yeah. Uh were you aware of this, David? I was, yeah. I, I know that there was some kind of sequel uh that came out like five or six years ago and there's a <laughs> there's a bunch of legal embroilments. Um mm-hmm. But yeah, I I also saw, and I forget where I read this, but the initial scripts did have um, did feature their childhood and their upbringing. And, oh, I didn't know that. And I would be so fascinated, as as would you, to go back and see those to see what actually drove them. But I also think, to their credit, they made a smart decision to leave their motivations and leave their personality somewhat enigmatic mm-hmm. uh, because that's why we're sitting here talking about it no so. you're uh, you're absolutely right i mean it, it does uh in in some regards make the narrative more compelling 
um, and wanting to kind of follow along with these journeys and just being invested in the character. So, so I agree with you. It was over two hours. So they just, it was like two Oh five or two (laughs) 10. They put plenty of uh, material in there for, for a drama that checked out. Like that doesn't, for a boxing movie that was, two hours and nine minutes long there was only like what 10 minutes of boxing yeah, yeah. Very little but box. they're shot so beautifully oh yeah. so man um might be the perfect segue for uh what you were saying earlier i think we need to talk about all of these amazing individuals outside of the actors um who made this film what what it is um absolutely i mean well we will put a pin in scorsese we'll leave him for last since there's a lot there. Yeah, he's not that important. He's, eh, you know, he's okay. Um, I have to say, I, I, I appreciate that he was nominated, but I am quite frankly shocked that Michael Chapman didn't win. Oh my God, I know. Yeah. For, for me, the um, his sort of magnum opus of photography is in that fight. The last fight was Sugar Ray Robinson and, yes. uh, yeah. and is just egging him on. He's like, come on, like, bring it on, let's go. And they do they do a jaw shot on a jib and they come to a rest on Robinson just before he's going to just obliterate Jake. They have the animal sound effects that are just reinforcing that during that scene too. And they have that long uh, sort of tracking shot on the ropes that ends at where the blood is just very slowly dripping off the ropes as well. And, you know, I don't know from whose perspective this is, but um, very reminiscent of Christ on a cross where he is finally mm-hmm. punished for these terrible things mm-hmm. he's done. And during that scene too, um, I was struck by the contrast of when Jake is having his uh, title fight and they have the clear water being like squeegee uh, out of the sponge all, o- all over his chest. Yeah. And then you contrast that with the blood from the sponge after what's happened with Joey and what's happened with Vicky, like he is one with his sins now. Like he's, and, and I think that's part of, it could have been part of what motivated Jake is to, and, and we'll get back to Michael Chapman, I promise. But, um, but it could have been something that motivated Jake is that he sought winning as some sort of cleansing of the terrible things he did. Now, I don't know if he's self-aware enough to process that, but subconsciously he could have, you know, manipulated himself into believing that. But I mean, that those that sequence where he just gets absolutely pulverized and is like, you know, you never got me down. His eyes are swollen shut. I mean, Michael Chapman's, you know, you could show just that scene and you'd know that guy was absolutely brilliant. That and the long tracking shot leading into his title fight were incredible. Yeah, the the shot with Robinson in particular right before he takes that beating for me was, I mean, it was the most striking scene in a film full of striking scenes. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that that fight actually became known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre because of such a beating that, that LaMotta took, leading them to stop the fight. Right. Uh, so that that was the moment I think even while we were watching it I, I said something about like was, wow that was incredible yeah I I mean honestly David when you when you decided to mention that scene I got goosebumps because 
we did not talk about that with you before the show started and to have you. And I was just going to say that last night, this being a film that Derek had not seen uh, previously start to finish. He brought up that same scene, that same sequence a a couple times just last night. And I think that that is so incredible. Like when you have two completely different individuals, no discussion was had. They both bring up the same scene. That guy did a good job. Exactly. <laughs> like right. it speaks to the genius of of Michael Chapman and right. and what happened there. So that was that was just really cool to hear hear you talk about it. And I think you very eloquently, you know, wove together both the craft of how that scene plays out and also the 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 thematic material and the interpretation of what it means and that's when you are doing cinematography well you know where not necessarily that you should notice cinematography sure um sometimes you know i know a lot of dps think that that is like i just noticed the, dutch that's, angles that's the oh yeah oh man <laughs> I, I I uh informed Derek what a Dutch ankle is a couple weeks ago. Did you watch Battlefield Earth after that? We were watching Thor. Dark, the first the Thor. Dark, the second one. Oh, was it the second it's one? It's the second one. Oh, yeah. okay. One of the Thors. The, the one that's not Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. Um the, the good one. Um and and Derek kept commenting. The whole damn movie's on, Dutch angles. Yeah, he kept commenting on the, you know, like the skewed perspective uh or or, and i was like oh it's that's called the dutch angle and so now literally anything we watch dutch angle dutch angle (laughs) (laughs) i my uh similar story my i uh explained to my girlfriend what because she saw me freak out about it i was like that's a split diopter shot and she was like what the hell is that (laughs) and you know, and I I explained to her what it is. So whenever we see one, like when we saw the movie Us uh, that Jordan Peele made, and he has a handful of those in there, and she was like, "Those diopter shots." I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, yeah, like I, his work on this movie is unparalleled because it is so, it's so violent, but it's also just strikingly beautiful, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh that's when you know you're on to something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I said, I, I'm not going to get hung up on it, but I guess I already have. Um, I, I really think he deserved the win for this. Um, just, I, I feel like it is so in a, in a class of its own, you know, in terms of the way that the story is translated uh, visually and, and it, like you said, I mean, that's a perfect way of putting it. It's this film, the story, it's brutal. It is violent. Um, it is grotesque. And he manages to make it look beautiful. Yeah. And very like lush and full of, even though mm-hmm. it isn't black and white, it feels very vibrant and full of life mm-hmm. and edgy. And um, yeah, I thought that the tracking shot from Jake's dressing room into the ring and this scene in you know the 13th round where Jake just gets obliterated uh, are two of the finest examples of, uh, how do I put it? Two of the finest examples of their type of scenes uh, that you could find. Like it's one of the mm-hmm. finest tracking shots that you could find. And it's one of the most brutal, you know, kind of, I mean, it, in a sense it is a death scene. And, and yeah. you know, he is getting... You know, he is getting his comeuppance for the 
things that he's done. Um, I, I also read uh, prior to us hopping on the podcast that uh, Scorsese was having a really hard time figuring out how to kind of choreograph a scene and how to shoot it. And he took inspiration from the original shot list of the shower sequence in Psycho. Yes. I heard to help that. Him figure it out. Um, and he, he later said it was the most uh, horrific to him. And like, it is horrific. I mean, picturing this film in color is first like oh. abhorrent to me because yeah. how, how dare yeah. you, but also it's uh, I mean, that'd be such a violent, film i mean more so than it already is well i think that's in part why part of the reason for the the black there were mm -hmm. several reasons why but it wouldn't have even been able to get put out as an r rating because of the amount of blood oh i'm so, sure yeah i mean it, it would have been rating. yeah well and they the what's hilarious is that they used hershey's chocolate for the blood <laughs> i which i feel like that's become like in some ways really stand i'm like I feel like they should have uh well I guess maybe for kind of the more cheapy horror films they still they still go with syrup. Mm -hmm. But uh, but I just find that hilarious that that like maybe originated with Raging Bull. I think it's possibly yeah. the best use of Hershey's chocolate which is garbage chocolate. I'm saying it. <laughs> well, it was very nice yep. appearing on the show. <laughs> we have a chocolate syrup aficionado here. <laughs> It was so nice to meet you guys. <laughs> well, okay, so so we're all we're all pretty much in agreement about Chapman, and 100%. I, I I would hope that we're also in agreement about the editor on this film, the sublime. I I, I mean, I, there's just too many accolades for how I feel about this person. We could do a whole podcast about Thelma Schoonmaker. Absolutely, absolutely, and I I mean. She won for her her editing on Ranging Bull. Rightfully so, so. Awesome. Rightfully so, for sure. And I actually, you know, I'm going to throw out this to, to you, David, because I didn't come across anything. Um, do you know in terms of, like, how much they shot as compared to what was in the final film? Like, you know, because sometimes uh, we all know of the filmmakers who they shoot and they shoot and they shoot, and then it makes it, like, just this like daunting task for the editor to sort it out. Um, do you know anything about, about what they shot as compared to what's in the film? I don't know. That's, that's a great question. And I would love to know the answer to that. I know that just based on what I've read that, you know, Scorsese in particular was very meticulous about the, about how this film should look because, you know, he had come off of a, uh, a cocaine overdose and he was in the hospital and that's kind of how De Niro coaxed, coaxed him into making this film and the boxing scenes that were supposed to take five weeks, they ended up taking 10. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't, I, I also wonder how much of it was simply just trial and error. Like they didn't time it out. Right. Because mm -hmm. in so many scenes, even though it's a close up, there's blood splattering one way, there's a punch landing one way, and then there's mm -hmm. a flash bulb going off the other way. Like, even though it is so, uh, uh, the photography is so detailed, you know, as you got, you guys know, being on a film production, it's not like you can just say, Oh yeah, well, it was cool how that happened. You know, we'll just take that. Like you have to be able to recreate these things. So mm -hmm. I, I, I I, uh, I I can't even really try to guesstimate because it's such a interesting 
dichotomy yeah, between actually setting up the shot and right. capturing a shot that took probably two seconds. <laughs> right. And, and, and I certainly didn't want you to feel like you're on, on the spot for, for answering that. I just, I, I feel I like I'm before the Hague right now. This is, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I have ultimate respect for editors. They, I, I really do think that they are the unsung heroes of filmmaking. Um, yeah. They, I mean, 100%. I'm sure, you know, people who, who work in some capacity in the industry, I'm sure it is a very familiar saying to everybody about how a film is made three times, uh, once, you know, as a script, once in production and then once in editing. And, and I really put the most focus on the last one because these are the people, I mean, depending on just how, how involved the director is, I know Scorsese was extremely involved, um, with this particular film and maybe he is for all their films, but, um, because she's, she's kind of his go-to woman, um, you know, in, in kind of much the same way that, uh, Spielberg taps Williams for like every single one of his scores at this point. Right. Um, it's, it's quite an amazing, uh, collaboration that they've had over multiple decades at this point. Um, but I, yeah, I just, I, I could, I could wax on forever about like how much respect I have for editors because they are truly the ones, uh, making sense out of all this. I mean, not to say that they don't have, you know, no, no, but uh, I, I think that's very apt to, especially in Scorsese's case, because he likes to improvise very much. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I would like to, you know, I should have kind of maybe seen if I could suss out more information. I feel like given the fact that in particular, these two have been working together for over 40 years at this point, um, that hopefully, you know, he gives her a wide berth to kind of, uh, make choices on her own and, and use her creativity and her skill, um, to, to improve the film. Um, I, I mean, I don't know what, what do, do you get a sense of like, who is the person that do you feel like this is coming from obviously Scorsese's vision, but given that she did win for her editing work on this, do you feel like maybe it, it comes out of her, mostly her sensibilities of how this film was interpreted and the way that it was cut together? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, Again, I feel like I'm before the Hague right now. Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I can't, uh, that's your answer. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I can't, uh, it, it's obviously hard to parse cause we're not actually right. in the edit room, but right. I, I would be inclined to say that she has about as much free reign as you could give an editor. Um, yeah. because I, I saw a quote that she said, um, I can't remember exactly when, but uh, someone commented on the fact that, you know, you work on these such violent movies and she said something to the effect of, well, they're not violent until I make them violent. And it's like, mm. oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. It's like, all right, we can get down with that. So, um, yeah. I, I, if I had to just purely guess, I would say that she is just about as much free reign as you could give an editor, which is what you want to do. And this is a woman who, in, in, for our audience, in case you weren't aware of her work, uh, first of all, eight total 
Oscar nominations, which is pretty incredible for any editor. Three wins. And like I said, one for Raging Bull. The other two actually won the... One of them is one of my favorite, per, my personal favorite of Scorsese's films, which is The Aviator. Yeah. Um, and then she also won Best Editing for The Departed. Which I watched were... I watched that last night after watching Raging Ooh. Bull. So I'm... Wow, David. I'm, I'm, I'm loaded that up. Is... Ooh, that is a back-to-back, man. That I I don't know if I can watch The, the Departed again start to finish because it is... That movie's nuts. Uh, it's nuts. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I love, like, I, I gravitate towards films for kind of like these, like, really amazing performances. I think Nicholson is crazy good in this film. Um, that film, I should say. Uh, but it is. He was great in Raging a- Bull, too. Let's be real. <laughs> he awesome. was the, uh, the announcer green guy, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was awesome. Well, you, didn't know, you didn't see his cameo? It was great. Um, but. It is just such a it is it is a truly like Derek, you're saying that it was hard for you to watch Raging Bolt. That's how I feel about the departed. Yeah. Just every scene is so heartbreaking to me. Are you talking about the feel good comedy of the year? Yeah, the exactly. Exactly. One for the whole family, the departed. Yeah. So I, and I mean, I remember the moment when and so like now I guess we'll just well, I want to give her her due. So like I mean for people who don't know, some of her other credits include, and and most of these um, are Scorsese films. Uh, the King of Comedy, uh, Color of Money, The Last Temptation of Christ, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, Age of Innocence, Casino, Bringing Out the Dead, Gangs of New York, another one of my favorite Scorsese films. Um, and then even, I mean, she's still working with him. So like his more recent films like Shutter Island, Hugo, Wolf of Wall Street, and The Irishman. Um, she's made a lot of violence. Yeah, she has made a lot of violence. But also, I mean, like, there's range there. You know, we got Age of Innocence totally. in there. King of um, Comedy, for sure. Yeah, comedy, I mean, which sure. which I have a funny story about that movie. Very shortly after my girlfriend and I had started dating, uh, it came over. We were going to watch a movie. I was going to cook dinner. And I was like, have you ever seen The King of Comedy? And she was like, no, I haven't. I've never heard of it. And I was like, well, strap in. So we watched The King of Comedy. <laughs> So we watched the King of Comedy and it was still early on enough where, and she told me as much uh, this week. She was like, I wasn't lying, but I was also, I would never watch that again with you. (laughs) She was like, it was so funny because she was very, she was very much like kind of just going with it. And then it was only afterward where she was like, I hated that movie. Oh, which, which, like, which is hilarious when you first start dating, <laughs> right? <laughs> which objectively is hilarious. Um, but yeah, like very. Uh, uh, even though Thelma Schoonmaker has worked with Scorsese almost exclusively, I mean, her range is incredible, and her it's sense of pace and mm-hmm. character and tone are just. I mean it doesn't really get much better than having her edit one of your movies. Totally agree. 100%. Um, she's, she's just, she's phenomenal. The reason why I wanted to just like make sure that we, she got her due before we moved on is because in mentioning the departed, uh, it sparked, you know, I, I'm not sure if you were able to watch like the original airing of the Oscars where he finally won. Um, Scorsese. Yes. 
uh, for so Derek, do you do you recall that at all? Okay, I do not. No. Okay, it was it was quite a moment. I mean, it was pretty obvious who was going to win <laughs> because uh, the individuals announcing the winner for best director were Spielberg and Lucas uh, and Coppola. That's pretty cool. So, and they're all part of the same crew. So, uh, so when they came out, I mean, this is a gentleman who had been nominated uh i mean i i would have to do some quick math here but like overall he's had 14 oscar noms and that's for different categories that's like between director i think he has a couple writing credits in there and then also best picture as being like a producer on films um but uh you know he he got a nom for raging bull for best director his one win though is the departed Hmm. Um, and so that was just really fun for him to, I mean, like that was 2006. Yeah. Okay. 2000. Um, so, I mean, think about how long his career had already been. I mean, I mean, he was already just an amazingly accomplished and esteemed, uh, creative. And so for him to finally get that recognition in that, that manner was incredible. So, so that was probably one of my. That, that's probably one of my highlights of ever watching the Oscars is seeing that take place. Um, but yeah, so let's let's talk about Mr. Martin Scorsese. Um, <laughs> Isn't that that guy that hates the Marvel movies? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I've heard about him. I've watched some of his movies on my iPhone. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute, but hold up one hot second, because I think you're thinking of Coppola. I think Coppola was the one who came at the Marvel movies. Uh, it, no, it was, I think both of them oh, had. Yeah. Okay. okay. I just remember Coppola very clearly, but I didn't. Yeah. Co- Coppola was much more scathing in his review. Scorsese was, I think he, Scorsese brought a more somber tone to it of like, this is just how it is now. Right. Whereas Coppola was like, this is ridiculous. And he was, this you is know. not cinema. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Uh, again, yeah, yeah again, Coppola went with the IPA version of Rage, and Scorsese <laughs> was the Coors Light. So, um, I really like these like beer yeah. analogies. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm gonna go get a mid-strength beer at the pub. There you go. <laughs> I, which you know, I think it's just so interesting. I, you know, maybe we need to have a spinoff, uh, not podcast, <laughs> but uh, episode where we talk about this this uh, group of directors that came up at the same time because they all kind of have the same um, leanings in terms of what they consider cinema to be because also Spielberg, I mean, Spielberg got kind of caught up, not necessarily for coming at Marvel movies. (laughs) He hates Netflix. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like his whole thing is like, no films need to have a theatrical release. That's what, that is what seeing a film is. Um, Not anymore. Not anymore. Uh, But I, I have to say that I appreciate where they're coming from. I mean, um, outside of, well, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not really tracking this too closely, but outside of Black Panther, um, I mean, have any of the Marvel movies gotten any critical acclaim? No, nor should they really, but that's, that's fine because they're, they're fun comic book popcorn movies. They have, I think more depth in some cases than you would expect, but they certainly don't have the layers of complexity that, that really anything Scorsese has ever put out. Right. Like they, they can't match that. And so from that comparison, I understand where they're coming from. I just think there's plenty of room for, for all different types totally of, agree. of yeah. content. A hundred percent. And one thing that I say quite often is like, you know, I try not to throw too much shade at any one film because when it comes down to it, even the quote worst film. That Poltergeist remake. 
Exactly. Yeah. Glad you got that one in there. Um, <laughs> which we haven't even seen, but we do throw quite a bit of shade at. Um, you know, it takes an incredible amount of work to make any film yeah. come together. And also the way that I look at it too is like any film, even if it's a bad film, that's a film providing jobs. Um, so hundred you know, percent. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not gonna bash people who are who are creating livelihoods for others. Um, so now that we got that out of the way, I'm curious, I want to go back to what you mentioned right at the top of our conversation, David, because when I had asked you about seeing Raging Bull for the first time, one thing I was really curious about, because now you were a little bit older than most of our guests are in terms of when they see a film for the first time, because a lot of these are like childhood favorites for (laughs) people. Um, were you already familiar with Scorsese's work or did you have a certain opinion about Scorsese when you saw Raging Bull? Certainly had a, a preconceived notion um, and and knew who he was and, you know, um, because sophomore in college, it was right around. Yeah, that would have been very shortly thereafter The Wolf of Wall Street, if I'm not mistaken. And okay. That obviously was a big deal. And I had known about him before then, but, you know, he was certainly on the brain uh, prior to seeing the movie. So. Um, but in terms of his movies that I'd seen leading up to that, I think I'd seen, I'd seen The Departed, I'd seen The Aviator, I'd seen, I think to that point I'd seen The King of Comedy, and I'd seen Taxi Driver, of course, because, I mean, mm-hmm. you can't, if you're in film school and you don't watch Taxi film Driver, school, you yeah. didn't actually go. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you didn't actually go to film school. <laughs> right, exactly. Your degree is a sham. Um, but I think... I certainly knew who he was, but I, you know, whether or not he was referred to as, you know, the Pope of cinema, I hadn't, hadn't gotten there yet, but I'm certainly there now. Okay. So thank you for taking me to my next question. Cause I'm curious, like it, I don't want anybody to feel like they have to be like, yeah, he's a ama- or her, she is amazing. Um, just because they have a certain kind of notoriety within the industry. Like it's okay. If maybe you're not a Spielberg fan or it's okay. If whatever, No, it's not. but <laughs> I, I, I love Spielberg, but, um, <laughs> but I mean, in terms of like how his films resonate with you, is he a filmmaker that you, you know, feel inspired by? Um, or, or that you look to outside of just the craft of what you saw within Raging Bull. Um, is he somebody that you, you know, as a filmmaker in your own right, uh, hope that maybe you can kind of go where he went on his own career trajectory? Yeah. I mean, he and I are basically the same person. So, (laughs) um, (laughs) so yeah, I think I'm going to become Martin Scorsese. Um, <laughs> that would be the best response we've ever gotten. <laughs> cool, cool. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say. No, um, no. I, I, in many respects, yes. Um, <clears throat> because one thing that I've admired a great deal about his career is that. You know, it didn't happen overnight for him. You know, as you pointed out, he won his first Oscar when he was, what, like in his 60s or something? You know, in somewhere around there, yeah. Yeah, you know, and um, I'm not normally the most patient person, and I know that. Um, but I do think that when 
especially in this career, you have to take the long view of things. And, you know, like Silence, uh, for example, that film he made uh, in, I think it was 2015, it came out. He'd had that idea for years, you know, literally like a couple of decades before he made it. Um, The Irishman, he and De Niro had been talking about that film since like two, like very shortly after The Departed came out. Um, Last Temptation of Christ, he had in his head, even even when he was, you know, sort of my age, uh, and it took him until you know, the late 80s to actually get it off the ground and get it made, and even then for a shoestring budget. Um, mm-hmm. So I think certainly in that respect of just, look, just taking the long view, these things do take time, but also he he's, he's never lost faith mm-hmm. in cinema's ability to change someone's mind to evoke a response from someone to examine in ways, both brutal and very beautiful um, Mm -hmm. humanity and the human condition and why we do terrible things to people, even if we have absolutely no consciousness uh, and are oblivious to the things that we've done. Um, so I, and so in terms of him as a person and as a, as a professional, that's something that I aspire to very much so. But I mean, when it comes to the craft, he's an encyclopedia, his films are encyclopedic references yeah. to the past. And he, and it, it makes me sad because he is getting older and, you know, you don't, and I mean, being in this career, if you can handle the stress of it, which is a challenge in its own right. You know, you're on your feet all day. You're on set. You're interacting with people. You know, sometimes you're going to have to lift something heavy. Like, you're going to be around a long time, you know, but it's... it's you're just being pulled in a million directions by people. Everybody wants your attention. Yep. Yeah. And so, uh, but that's kind of where I came down on him. And obviously in a film school, you know, you hear... Uh, you know, you hear the name Scorsese and you kind of just, especially going into that, you think of him as this sort of uh, high pencil mark of mm-hmm. what your career is supposed to look like. And then you get into the actual industry and realize that you are an idiot. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I uh, very much so admire his, uh, his stamina. It, like, I mean, to keep turning out just amazing films, you know, year after year after year and not just amazing, but it seems like every 10 or so years he has something that really is kind of a landmark, whether, you know, like he had taxi driver in 76, he had raging bull in 1980, Goodfellas came out in 1990. Mm -hmm. Um, He had, you know, gangs of New York, the aviator and the departed all within six years of each other, four years of each other. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and you know, then to come out with shutter Island, the wolf of wall street, Hugo, um, you know, even though Hugo isn't, you know, up there and like, you know, like Goodfellas or, you know, taxi drivers for, because he has such an affiliation with the mob and things like that. But, um, you know, to have in a some cinematic sense, right? Exactly. <laughs> to have some, yeah. <clears throat> well, I will say that I did enjoy, I did enjoy Hugo much more than I enjoyed Silence, but that's only because I saw 
arguably the superior version of Silence, which is the original Japanese version. Were you aware version. of- uh, Really? Yeah. it's uh, We actually guessed it on a different show where that was a film that we were asked to watch. And it is, I, I would, uh, I mean, we're going totally off. off we're off the rails. Well, well, we're talking about Scorsese. Um, I would, you know, if you are a fan of like kind of the double feature, um, I would watch those two back to back. And they're uh, both uncomfortable. Okay. I mean, it's the same movie, but it's, it's yeah. an uncomfortable, difficult to watch. Movie, I so. like personally would actually just really love to know your opinion of Scorsese's interpretation of the original material. Mm. Um, okay. So, yeah. It would be it would be a really cool conversation. Welcome to the Hague. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I no, I totally I I and I am in complete agreement with everything that you said. I respect Scorsese so much as just somebody who has such like he has equal passion and like you said, encyclopedic knowledge a film. He is uncompromising and, in his decisions made to take that vision that he has mm -hmm. and put it on the screen. Yeah. It, it is, it is a joy even with the most uncomfortable films to watch his work because of just what, I mean, I, I don't really actually throw this word around a lot, but like just what a genius he is. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I will say that like probably, you know, when I was talking earlier about um, being a big fan of Spielberg, part of what Spielberg does for me is kind of, he has a more sentimental um, uh, layer He's to got his that work. Nostalgia um, power. Yeah. Which, which like, personally I love. Yeah. I don't think that in large part Scorsese has that. That's maybe why Hugo kind of sticks out for me in that regard. Um, but uh, what I can say with full confidence, I mean, outside of like just his, his amazingness as a director is what a champion he is of cinema. And, and I'm not just talking about, I hardly talking about his own work. Um, he is somebody who, you know, for everybody out there that might be listening, uh, I would just highly recommend that you, you know, on your own kind of do a little bit of reading of what he's done for film preservation um, mm -hmm. in terms of films that otherwise would have been completely lost to history. Uh, he, he very much initially single-handedly kind of like made this an issue that got other people to care about it. Um, so from that standpoint, uh, you know, he has done so much for cinema. And then even like, I, I just am so kind of um, taken aback by his graciousness and humility because even, uh, I don't know if anybody out there is aware, David, if you're aware of uh, Masterclass. Yes. Um, you know, I saw his classes on film. I'm like, this is a person who absolutely d does not have to do this, probably could do yeah. uh, other things with his time. And he makes a choice to do this for people that are, you know, wanting to learn more about film, wanting to maybe get into film. And just so his graciousness about, you know, welcoming the next generation of filmmakers and not being proprietary about, you know, and protective of like, uh, or, 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 you know, I, I hope you can kind of understand like what I'm trying to get at. Like he's Completely. just so gracious and wanting to bring in more people into this field and industry. And I just, I appreciate that so much. Um, so I appreciate yeah, that because there are not enough people trying to do this stuff. I, <laughs> trying to work in film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but real... if there are going to be, 
I want them to learn from Martin Scorsese. It's a really overlooked right. industry, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I I completely agree with you, David, and I feel like, uh, you know, this conversation that we've had today, I I really appreciate the fact that we are able to kind of talk about all these different elements because look, I love. Uh, other films that have zero Oscar noms and zero, you know, like kind of um, Goonies acclaim. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I was like having to think for a minute. Wait, um, what? <laughs> the Goonies doesn't have any Oscar nods. <laughs> Does it? No, 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 no. I could say that with like confidence. No. <laughs> I mean, I personally think that some of those child performances were pretty amazing, but um, so, you know, I love films for lots of different reasons, uh, but it was, it was really quite a joy to discuss with you and to hear your viewpoints on, you know, why this film has the resonance that it does and continues to impact both people and cinema 40 years on. Um, so thank you so much for your time today. Oh gosh, it was my pleasure. I a uh, little inside baseball for anyone who is listening. I, I basically told Anna, "Your podcast is awesome, and I want to be on it." So, <laughs> I <was> like, <clears throat> so I listen. Oh, well, that's all it takes. If you <laughs> no, I mean, and this is this is leading up to kind of my next question because, like, look, we we welcome. Um, you know, anybody who has a passion for film and a passion for a particular movie, because that's that's what makes this really so fun. Like yeah. Derek and I obviously will will do our our part of the podcast ahead of bringing the guest on. But it's really the guest and them having a special love for a film that makes this so fun for us because they bring to the table their own insight and passion mm -hmm. And, and, and just make it just a really amazing conversation to be had. So that being said, given that you yourself are a filmmaker, I just was very curious if you wanted to share with our audience, you know, I know that the last 11 months now have, um, oh God, have been, been yeah, we're getting there, um, have been, uh, least of which odd and, and maybe challenging in some ways for filmmakers, but are there any projects that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, uh, we have, well, and before I get to that, you guys are very gracious hosts. Uh, and so I, I was so happy that I get to spend this time with you guys. Uh, and uh, I appreciate not just in this episode, but in episodes previous, and I assume episodes uh, uh, moving forward, you guys kind of get the tr the trivia aspects out of the way, which I love, and not and not out of the way like they're a throwaway. But you guys address that so you so you can have this conversation with your guest, and that you can drill down into the things that are really deep and resonant about the film, and really read into the theory of it, which I think is awesome. So mad props to you guys. Um, Thank you. But I uh, recently just produced my most recent project is called Waltz of the Angels. It is a short film. Uh, it stars Lisette Alexis, who is going to be in, uh, she's in a new film for Lionsgate coming up uh, pretty soon. And uh, it stars Jason Dolly, who you may know from uh, from his earlier days on a show called Good Luck Charlie. And uh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we, uh, we had the 
the pleasure of working with Jason uh, on this and a very different role for him, uh, which, which I'm, I'm so excited for. I'm so excited uh, for people to see him in this very different mode that he has, uh, very different gear that I don't think uh, uh, has been showcased enough. So uh, I'm very excited. It's uh, in post-production right now, and uh, I can promise you it will be a wild ride. It'll be very, it'll be very fun viewing experience. Oh, that's amazing. And as soon as it uh, comes to a place where people can see it, uh, definitely let us know so that we can share that information. Mm-hmm. No, nah, um, we, we really plan to just keep it to ourselves. With this one, we're going to just... <laughs> We're, we're just gonna hold yeah we're gonna holster this one and we're just you know we're just gonna you know what save that one for the christmas party hey, uh, an interesting and uh counterintuitive distribution strategy yeah <laughs> that's exactly right no we, we 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 plan to get it out anywhere and everywhere that we can so uh we're and, and our goal is to you know I'm a big believer in making things accessible, you know, making sure that a lot of eyes get on thing on different projects because it's such a diverse and uh, democratized uh, ecosystem of viewing content right now. So, you know, we're our goal is to make it accessible, very easy to get to, easy to watch, and uh, you know, it's a short, so it's as, it's it'll be about as long as uh, like a thirty minute episode of TV, and there's no commercials. Nice, like that, yeah. <laughs> There you go. David, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, Certainly, listeners, we'll update you um, when there's an opportunity to watch the film. And on that note, David, thank you again for being part of the show. Thank you guys for having me and take care of yourselves. So, David, again, thank you so very much for being on the show. It was truly our pleasure to have you on it. Indeed. (laughs) We 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 suddenly got real fancy, but (laughs) but it's true. Okay, so Derek, uh-huh. I think I think this might be the first time where I might be getting a different answer out of you. Yeah. Would you watch this film again? Nah. <laughs> okay. I don't I don't think I I honestly don't think I would. I'm glad that I watched it. I think it's it's kind of crazy that this was like literally the first time I watched this movie from start to finish and it was an incredible like incredible like I guess masterpiece or master crafting of cinema. Mm-hmm. But also it's probably not something that I'm going to like go out of my way to watch again. Like may- maybe I will, but so much of it made me so uncomfortable Yeah. that, you know, so many of these other movies that we're talking about are movies that are almost like movie comfort food mm-hmm. where you can just yeah. watch them. If you kind of like want to raise your spirits, this movie does not necessarily raise my spirits the same way that a lot of those other movies would. So, so probably not, but who knows? I mean, as far from as far as for me, I mean, same as what David was telling us. I I know that I saw this movie. Maybe I had seen bits and pieces otherwise, but uh, the first time I saw this movie from start to finish was in film school, and I think that you just come away from that with a really different emotional, sure, you know, resonance with the movie. Like it, it, yeah, it wasn't something that I grew up with certainly, and um, when you are first task to to watch a film where you are explicitly being told to watch it for certain cinematic reasons yeah um it just impacts you differently and so i don't i mean goodness i can't imagine 
having if i had seen it as a kid being like yeah i want to watch something <laughs> yeah i want to um, watch a black and white movie that i don't know anything what's going what? i mean no. i love me some black and white movies don't get me wrong but um but yeah i i no but but that being said like if you know we're flipping through channels and i see it i might like watch it until the next commercial break yeah, it's and not on, on. It's it's not one of those movies that shows up on. Not, like, not a lot. No, it's not no. on TBS very mm -hmm. often. Maybe we'd catch it on like AMC or something like that. Yeah. So okay, so call to action. <laughs> I well, I you know what I'm curious about just because we were talking um, about the com inevitable comparisons to like the Rocky franchise and yeah. that sort of thing. I just want to know what people gravitate towards. Like if if you so to speak appreciate the kind of the more realistic portrayal which i do think raging bull did i think so because the rocky movies are ridiculous when it comes to the boxing they're like no one's ever defending everyone's just getting jabbed in the face repeatedly mm -hmm. <laughs> like i don't okay like they're fun to watch but right. if you watch an actual boxing match you realize just how wildly different real boxing is to like just what you see in the Rocky movies. And that's totally fine. Cause it's a movie, but the way that they shot raging bull, there was like maybe 10 minutes of boxing in the whole film. Yeah. But I think they did try to take a different approach to how they it, portrayed it. I'm not saying that Rocky, you know, didn't imply that boxing was a brutal sport, but raging bull just took it to another level. Yeah. And so I'm, I would just like to know what people prefer. Like if you're in the mood for a boxing movie, are you putting on Rocky or are you putting on raging bull? Um, definitely putting on rocky so. because i just want that <laughs> want that positive feeling at the end you want that those warm fuzzies yeah um so yeah it and if you have you know anything else that you would want to share with us about your feelings on raging bull um and if it's a film that has in any way resonated with you because this is a movie that is i mean i believe it was actually um well okay i know for a fact that as far as the last list which i don't know why they haven't come out with one more recently but like the 2007 afi like greatest movies yeah it's like number four yeah exactly it's no and so when you ask me if i'm gonna watch it again there are other movies that i probably won't watch again that are amazing movies like i joked about requiem for a dream not watching it again yeah saving private ryan amazing movie probably not gonna watch yeah. it again because it's so much of it is already burned into my memory. American I, History X. I don't need to see those movies again to to remember how impactful they were right. and how great they were. And that's kind of the category that I put Raging those Bull. Those are in. a one and done. Um yeah. and that is not to uh discredit or, yeah. or shame those movies. In fact the opposite. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were so effective yeah. at what they were trying to do yeah. that I'm good. Yeah, I'm good yeah. too. Um, but yeah, it's number four currently on, on the most current list of AFI's greatest movies. And then also, um, I believe it was actually the very first movie added to the like National Film Registry for preservation yeah. of cinema. I can so, see that. I, I mean, the way that it's, I mean, everything that we talked about, it's it's a very impressive work of art. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It should be preserved. So if you want to get in touch with us, uh, we would love to hear from you. You can chat us up on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and it's the same handle for all three, at 80s Montage Pod, and 80s is 80S. Mm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we are swinging wildly away from these uh, acclaimed films that we've had over the last couple episodes. Not to say that this isn't a great film, but do you have any idea what it might be? 
I don't. <laughs> so we are back to Mr. John Hughes. Okay. And some kind of wonderful. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that is a very, it's going to be a very different vibe. It's going to be a very different vibe. He yeah. didn't direct this one, but I still consider, I mean, it's still, it's really a John Hughes film. Um, yeah. He wrote it and it is part of his, it's the last of his teen films that he did in the 80s. So it's less of like the 80s teen comedy and more in line with like a like a breakfast clubish kind of drama type yeah i mean feel. He, he basically had like okay so he has 16 films oh six teen yeah films i, not, I, I got not it 16 yeah. films. um <laughs> and three of them are more campy broad comedy and then three are on the more serious side yeah uh, some kind of wonderful being one of them, along with what I would consider the other two, Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink. Yeah. Whereas uh, Ferris Bueller and Sixteen Candles and Weird Science are those like kind of you know very broad kind of lighter fare. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some ways, I do actually like this one the best. Like, I it'd be really hard for me to like really pick out the John Hughes film, the teen film that I love the most. Um, but I love this one, namely for Mary Stuart uh, Masterson's performance as Watts. All she cared about was her drums. Yeah. And, and him. All I care about in the... <laughs> I'm not... Yeah. <laughs> That'll probably be our clip for the next episode. So, and we're going to have an amazing guest. Um, very excited to have him on board. And in the meantime, uh, thank you so much for hanging with us. And we will talk to you in two weeks. All right. Bye.